Thanks, Dan. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. Then we get to Acts and Romans. So if you get to Romans, go back to the left. First, Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Uh, and if you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to the right. Acts chapter 4. Many, if not all of you, know that we're in the midst of a transition as a church uh, this summer from being a location of Park Community Church here in Logan Square to being an autonomous, independent church that will be launched from Park Community Church as Church in the Square on September 1st is our first day of sort of organizational autonomy. September 2nd is our first gathering as that distinct and uh, new church. And among all of the things that are going on, because you can imagine, as you've, many of you have experienced, there are a lot of different transitions going on. And I think to do transitions like this well, there's a key ingredient that we need from the Spirit of God, which is patience. We need patience because we're learning a lot of new things uh, together. And so I just want to thank you. I have sensed uh, from many of you just an incredible spirit of patience and grace as we, we're learning how to do this as a church that has existed for 30 years, Park Community Church. This is the first time they're launching a church that we're launching a church from within our church. And so thank you. Thank you for the grace that you've extended to our leadership, to small group leaders, to our staff, to our elders. And so I just believe that the way that we do this ought to speak the truth of the gospel to one another and to our friends and neighbors around us. And so thank you. And I, I would I just ask that you would continue to do that, <laughs> continue to give us uh, grace, continue to afford one another peace and patience as we're learning how is God calling us uh, to, into this next season. Because the great temptation when we're doing a transition like this, like, like many other seasons of life, is to merely think about ourselves. And how does this affect me? And what do I feel like? And what do I want out of a transition like this? And, and I think the evil one loves when we just think about ourselves. He loves when we're preoccupied with, with thoughts of self-sufficiency, self-reliance. And so I would just ask by, by God's uh, grace, by his spirit, that we would continue to look not to ourselves, but really to those who are not yet a part of our church a part of our church here in the near west side of the city and throughout the city, so that more and more people come to know, love, and follow Jesus is our primary motivation for taking this uh, step of faith and following God uh, in this. Obedience to him and seeing more people come to know and love uh, our God. Make sense? Amen to that? So let, let's continue to be uh, patient together, and let's, uh, you know, as the Apostle Paul wrote, let's not grow weary in doing good, um, because it will bear much fruit. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to us, uh, talk to you, talk to myself as well about boldness and about courage. And in, in recent months in particular, I think that we have seen incredible acts of boldness and courage, particularly from women who have spoken against power in the midst, in the wake of abuse, in the wake of hurt and harassment. We've seen incredible resilience um, from women who have been harmed, who have been hurt. We've seen a tremendous wave of boldness to speak truth against power. And, and I think that really ultimately is one of the most courageous things that we can do in this life is to speak truth against power from those who are marginalized, from those who are oppressed, from those who are hurt, to speak truth against power. And, and there's an interesting dynamic that happens, and not just for these women, but in general when it comes to doing things that are bold and courageous. We're always having to make a calculation because risk is imminent. Risk is something that whenever you're doing something worthwhile, you are no doubt risking something. These women risk rejection. They, they risk their careers. They risk their names. They, they risk people believing whether or not they were telling the truth. 
I, I think similarly, we see an incredible amount of courage through the past 2,000 years of men and women saying yes to the Lord, going to the far reaches of the globe to speak the gospel against the powers of evil in some of the most difficult and contentious parts of the world. There's incredible courage there. They're, they're thinking through the risk of what that will be like to risk their lives, to risk their reputation. When my family went to the Philippines when I was only five years old, my, my sister was only three months old. You can imagine my sweet southern Mississippi grandmothers thinking about their little three-month-old granddaughter going to, by their imagination, the absolute backwoods of the Philippine islands, Right? There was a risk that my parents were embracing that maybe mom is not going to think this is a great idea. And yet, for the sake of the gospel, my parents went. For the sake of truth, many women have been speaking. And I'd like to encourage those of you, our, our brothers, sisters, people of color who have stepped into a gathering, a context, a church like this, Park Community Church, if you didn't know it, historically incredibly white, right? And by God's grace, we have over and over again seen him grow something uh, like Ephesians chapter 2. He's broken down the dividing walls of hostility that stood between races and classes and socioeconomics. And we've seen Jesus bring together small groups, a community, a people of God that is not monolithic, that is not homogeneous, that by God's grace is more and more reflective of the kingdom of heaven. And yet for people of color, that takes an incredible act of courage to step into a context, to listen to a preacher who is white, a church that is historically white. And so I want to thank you for that courage because we are becoming something so much more beautiful as we continue to say yes to the church that is not easy to build, but the church that Jesus is building nevertheless. And so we see those incredible acts of courage. I, I want to say there's incredible acts of courage for single folks to continue to engage in Christian community that vaunts marriage as God's blessed best for humanity, right? Have you ever heard this? You picked up on this, that like God gives marriage to those who are actually varsity level Christians. And if you're JV, you just got to wait and you'll be more effective in ministry, right? Because we've got a verse, 1 Corinthians, right? And, and so I want to thank you for your courage to continue to engage. It's risky in doing that. I, I want to I thank our married folks for the courage that it takes to actually live in purity on both sides of marriage, on both sides of your wedding day. I want to I encourage, I want to thank you for the courage that families are embracing to raise your children in the city when every national headline says Chicago is dark, Chicago is broken, the CPS school system is debunked. I want to thank you families for doing the courageous thing and saying all those things may be true, but there is a beauty in this city as well that is missed when we run to the suburbs. Yeah, I said it, right? That ultimately that the Lord is doing something in our church that is incredibly courageous. And if we're not careful, when big steps of courage are taken, we may applaud those who have taken those steps and not the fundamental thing that is animating their courage. See, there may be risk involved, but when we calculate whether or not we're willing to take on risk, what we are really doing is say, I believe in truth more than I believe in that risk. See, the same amount of faith is required to be timid as it is to be courageous, but it's a faith placed in a completely different object. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? When we are timid, we are putting all of our faith in the consequence of the difficulty and of the risk. When we are courageous, we are putting all of our faith in the truth and in particularly of who God is. And I think this is where Acts chapter 4 takes us. And so to help us understand how God might be speaking to us today about boldness and courage, let's pray and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we 
in and of ourselves are often very timid people. And I can speak for myself. That I often don't say the thing that I know that your spirit is driving home in my heart and in my mind because I'm scared of the consequence. I know that I often step back from my responsibility or from ours as a church because that road ahead seems difficult. It seems costly. And so we thank you that when we see your son, we see one who is honest about the risk, who in the garden of Gethsemane prays to you, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And yet, Father, with courage and faith in you, he stepped forward. And so may the power of the courage of Christ animate our hearts, not so that we can uphold ourselves as heroes, but so that we would truly see Jesus in the truth and beauty that, uh, of who he is as our Savior. And so help us, God. Many of us are in situations right now that require incredible courage. Many of us are wondering uh, what step we ought to take, how we ought to take that step. And so would you encourage our hearts, Father, today, not, not by some sort of tweetable moment or, or pithy line, but God, by your word that is enduring, that is life-giving, that is the anchor of our souls, and primarily would it be through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our life. Build us up in that, we pray, God. Help me, help me to be clear and responsible with your word. May we reject the wisdom of this world and embrace that wisdom from above that James speaks about. May we anchor ourselves deeply in the community you've given us and in your very character and relationship with you by your spirit. So God, do all of that and more for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Would you open up again uh, Acts chapter 4? If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible, Acts chapter 4. If you remember, we've been tracking in the book uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and a number of things have taken place over the first number of chapters. We've seen Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father in two kind of dynamic ways. One, ascending in a royal sense, and that he is taking on the mantle of king, and yet he's also ascending in a literal sense. As his disciples are looking, he is taken up by a cloud, and in doing so, he becomes more present with his people than ever before, because in chapter 2 of Acts, we see the Spirit of God rush in upon the people of God, and so they're filled up and begin to do these signs and wonders and give picture and evidence, if you will, of the power of the Spirit of God. And then in chapter 3, the apostles, namely the, the two leaders of the apostles, the primary leaders, Peter and John, begin to do public ministry in the power of the Spirit. They begin to do this work in particular by not walking by a man who had been crippled from birth, who was unable to walk, who daily his friends brought him outside of the gates of the temple where he begged for money because he needed food, where he was unable to do a day's work because of his deficiency in his legs, and because also he had been marginalized by culture, left outside of the gathering of God's people, only seen by his need and, and only seen by his condition and not the worth and beauty of the image of God. And that's what Peter and John saw one day. They looked at him. If you remember, a verse and a half was committed to eye contact. The power and dignity given to a man who had been rejected by society simply by eye contact. Peter looks at him and he says, you look at me. And there was this wonderful moment and it was a little bit awkward because they were just staring at each other. But it was beautiful and it was powerful. And it was then that in the spirit of God, Peter said those words, rise, get up and walk in what? The name of Jesus. And this is where the ripple effect starts to take over the first century context because people who were in power in that day did not like the name of Jesus. 
Now, you might say, well, now I love the name of Jesus. Just tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his blood. Like, let's sing that song. But in and of ourselves, left to our own religious sensibilities, no one loves the name of Jesus. Because Jesus' name is threatening to your power, to your self-will, your self-drive, your self-determination, your control. Isn't it true if Jesus is in control, you and I are not? If Jesus is truly supreme and he is king, then you and I are not those who get a voter's right back to the God of the Bible. That's not how this works. We either bow the knee to King Jesus or we must kill him. And this is what we looked at in chapter 4, that when Jesus is revealed to be his Lord through his name and power and glory, you either kill him or you crown him. There is no middle ground. And so as this has taken place, all the religious elites of the day were getting frustrated They were upset with Peter and John because they were preaching and because they were preaching a message in opposition to the message that they were preaching. Peter and John were welcoming into the community by these signs and wonders. People who these religious elites did not want around, did not believe, were worthy of their time and attention and community. And so I I want us to get a picture of how this has been taking place in the first century here as the early church is taking root. Jesus ascends, the Spirit comes, fills the people of God, they begin to do the work of God as the community of God, and it's starts causing a ruckus. It starts causing a ruckus. And so the question for us at the outset is why isn't the church causing more of a ruckus in our neighborhood and our city? Why, why is it that very few people may even know that we gather or that we follow Jesus? Seems to me that everyone kind of knew Peter and John had something going on. And it was not in and of themselves so that no one could boast but of the Spirit of God. And so it was in this context, the religious leaders essentially were saying, we're going to do something. They, they put them in jail. They put them on trial. But they weren't quite sure how to stop them. And so Peter and John have to continue to explain themselves. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13. Peter and John explaining what is going on. And, and now they're responding as the narrator, Luke, gives us a picture of that response. Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness, that is the religious leaders, of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. A few observations here, three things that are pulled apart. One, the observation is the boldness of Peter and John. Secondarily, is the commonness of Peter and John. And thirdly, that they had been with Jesus. Uh, Firstly, there's this boldness. And in that particular language, this boldness that they have, is the ability to speak truth with clarity in public. Speaking truth with clarity in public, Peter and John had just preached, well, really Peter, because he was always the one to talk, right? I'm speaking for the group. Peter constantly believed that everybody would vote for him to be the one to speak, right? Peter and I would get along. And so he, he speaks this truth that in the name of Jesus, this man has gotten up and walked. And so because of that sermon, because of that response, now the religious leaders are like, wow, they're bold. They're speaking truth with clarity in public. What are we going to do about that? That's a kind of brashness. That's a kind of courage that we're not familiar with. Secondly, why they were so perplexed by them, why they didn't know what to do with them, notice they said they were uneducated common men. That's kind of offensive, right? I mean, that's hurtful, right? One of the observations that you had at lunch today was, wow, Jason preached with boldness, but he was kind of common and uneducated. And I was like, wow, that, that's just hurtful. Please, please stop having that conversation at brunch. That's just wrong. I would sort of be hurt by that, right? And yet, this is the observation. What are they saying? 
remember these religious elites grew up as little Jewish boys, grew up through the ranks, educated, esteemed not only by their pedigree, but also by their education. And therefore, they viewed their value through their pedigree and through their education. And those were the things that Peter and John lacked. We're always scared of what we don't understand. We're always scared of those who are different than us. And so these religious leaders look at Peter and John with this boldness and yet not with the same education that they had. In other words, they're laity. They're unpaid professionals. They're unpaid, unprofessional, and yet they are the ones out front doing this work. Little side note, and this will be for your joy and mine, Ephesians chapter 4 says that the Lord has given elders, teachers, and leaders to the local church not to do the work of ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down yet? Some of you, oh, you sent me this email before, love you, love you. I ask you, hey, what do you think about doing this? Ah, I'm too calm and uneducated. I'm not, I'm not sure I feel comfortable with doing that. I'm not sure that I could do that. That's the point. The point is not that we are a bunch of people that only do the things that we are educated to do, but that we are the kinds of people that follow God and do what he desires for us to do, even if we see in ourselves a lack of ability to do so. Am I preaching to you yet? See, you and I are so consistent, and I I include myself in this. When someone asks us to do something, the first thing we think about is, am I able? Am I willing? Do I have what it takes? Christians think about something completely different. Is this what God is saying? Is he enough to accomplish this work? You see, Peter and John were not those who went to seminary, got really great educations, went to the right schools, and were raised up in the right families. They were people who were bold because the Spirit of God was alive in them. And so, friend, brother, sister, the prerequisite to doing the work of ministry is merely the Spirit of God. That's all you need. So now you have to say yes to all my requests. <laughs> this, this is not all that they've said. I, I, want, I want us to see this. Here, here's the power of this moment. Because it says that they were bold. It says that they were common and educated. And, and that the, the religious leaders were astonished by this. Look at the latter half of verse 13. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's the power. There's the power. See, their their boldness actually makes sense because they've been with Jesus. Their uneducated nature, their uneducated history was of little consequence because they had been with Jesus. In other words, Jesus was their teacher. Can you imagine walking along with Jesus and going, Jesus, you know, I know that we've been following you for three years. You've been teaching us about the nature of the kingdom. You've sent us out to do the work of ministry, but I still think I need to go to seminary. I still think I need to go get an education. That, to be sure, loved my experience at seminary, really, really helpful, and equipped me in order to do certain things. But that is not what qualifies me for ministry. That is not what qualifies you or disqualifies you from doing ministry. The Spirit of God being with Jesus, he was their teacher, he was their guide, he was their power, and the religious elites did not know what to do with Peter and John. See, in education, you got a response to you. You go, well, they went to this school, so I know they're coming at it from this angle. They're like, they were with Jesus. I'm terrified. They were with Jesus. It's the kind of power that's not of this world. And so they spoke with boldness. They spoke as uncommon and uneducated. They spoke as men who had been with Jesus, and they were recognized as those who had been with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I hope that that's how people explain my life. I hope that's how people explain the work that I do in all all different walks of life. As a father, as a husband, 
as a pastor, as a friend, as a son, as a son-in-law, and all of the different roles that I play in life, and I, I wonder about you, it would, would not it be sweet that, it, yes, they lived with boldness, and yes, maybe they didn't have all of the answers, but I recognize them as one who had been with Jesus. This is an individual who had been with Jesus, and therefore I understand how they can speak with such boldness, despite the fact that they lack the kind of education that these men required. So they have to do something. Knowing that they were bold, these religious leaders have to do something. Knowing they're bold, knowing that they are uneducated, knowing they had been with Jesus, the, the religious leaders tried to piece together their response. Because if you remember, 5,000 people now have been saved by these uneducated, bold guys who have been with Jesus. Now, these leaders, these are these, their, their people. They, they were the spiritual and governmental and political leaders of this particular region. And so they, they, have, to, they have to have some sort of response 5,000 of their constituency are now following these, un- they don't know what to do with this. So they, they huddle together in their little religious huddle, right? And they start to think about what are we going to do. So look at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, don't you love that, that he's standing right beside them? They can't just say, well, this was just a fix- picture of your imagination. This is just a story. No, the dude who you knew could not walk is now standing Right there. Do you see that? In the original language, standing means standing. And so we understand that he is standing right beside them. What he was unable to do, now he is their living proof of the power that Peter and John had been with Jesus and spoke and preached in his name. So seeing that he had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That's good. Keep going. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Here comes the overzealous religious huddle. What are we going to do? Saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. That is in the name of of Jesus. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Firstly, I want you to notice that they see this man standing next to them, healed, and their response for why they have no way to respond to that is not because they believe in this healing, but because they know everybody else does. Notice the language, I believe, in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred together. Now in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For this, a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So what do these men care about most? Their name, their popularity, their reception, their acceptance within the community. And they're like, all of these people believe in what has taken place here. What are we going to do? So what religion tells you to do is to fear the impact of Jesus and not surrender to Jesus as king. So they don't do that. They begin to spar with one another, deciding what they should do. Just loving standing there this whole time. This man standing there healed. You wonder what he's thinking about this. Like, these guys are crazy. Like, I'm legitimately that guy. Why are you huddling together? You should fall on your knees. Yet the men cannot deny the power, can they? They cannot deny that there is something going on, that there is something that they desire to control, and all that they can do is just say, please stop talking. 
please stop talking. Don't speak and teach and do this anymore. Remember, they have all the governmental, all of the political, all of the religious power, and so there's a lot behind this by way of consequence. What they could do, they've already thrown them in jail. They've already put them on trial. They're running out of options, and they, they have all of the power because they knew that Jesus' name made them bold. They knew that Jesus' name made them powerful. They knew that Jesus' name had made this man well, that Jesus' name and his power threatened all earthly power, including the religious leader's power. So I want us to understand that the power of the day is scared, terrified of Jesus. This earthly power is running. Now, can you even imagine what it must have been like for Peter and John? Yes, they are bold. Yes, they are common men. Yes, they had just been with Jesus. But now they're facing their greatest opposition yet without Jesus' presence. See, these religious leaders would come all around all the time with Jesus there. And Jesus was the one who would step out boldly, right? There was this one time the religious elites came to him and just said, Jesus, should we give to Caesar? Should we give to Caesar? Jesus says, bring me a coin. Whose, whose face, whose image is on the coin? And they say Caesar's. And then he like, just an incredible Jesus juke, just goes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what's God. And they're silent and didn't argue with him anymore. I mean, if I'm Peter and John, yes, I'm taking notes, but if this is happening, I'm like, I sure wish Jesus was here. You ever have that feeling? I sure wish Jesus was here. Man, I, I got that feeling all the time. But if God in his infinite wisdom and his great grace, instead of providing us with Jesus right here and right now to take that on, in fact, gives you the spirit of God and empowers you with the spirit of God, then he's alive and well with you. He is alive and well with you and, a, and enables you to respond rightly with courage to such opposition. They don't know what they're going to do next. Peter and John don't know what these men are going to do in response to what they have done. In many respects, they have broken the religious law of the day. They're speaking and preaching of God and the person and work of Jesus. I want us to understand this powerful context. Peter and John are in the margins of this society. Peter and John are vulnerable in this particular culture. Peter and John are the other. They are the different ones. They are the weak ones. They are the vulnerable ones in this particular situation. Yes, they are speaking truth to and against power, and yet now power is taking control. Power has thrown them in jail. Power has put them on trial. Now power seeks to silence them. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Did you hear that? They come to these religious people and just say, whether it's right to listen to God or listen to you, we'll let you be the judge. That's brilliant. I mean, that, that's exactly what Jesus did with the coin of Caesar, right? It's essentially just put them in this space where those in power now just got completely worked over by truth. Do you want us to listen to God or want us to listen to you? We'll let you be the judge because we can't help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. In, in other words, we can't help but respond to the way that Jesus has worked in our life. We can't help but respond to the way that we've seen Jesus work in this world. There is something fundamental here that Peter and John are being animated by, that you and I need this word today, because they are not merely being courageous and bold because they are brash. They are being courageous and bold because they know who God is. Are, are you with me? 
they are not being courageous and bold because this is just who they are. They are being courageous and bold because they are saying, what we have seen and what we have heard is that God is a God who shows up for his people. God is a God who protects his people. God is a God whose truth prevails, whose beauty is undeniable, and whose power is real and alive, and it's resurrection style and power. This is amazing. It's the kind of power that you and I need, and yet a kind of power that you and I often fail to understand. And I think it really comes down to an understanding of God's protection. Friend, brother, sister, do you really believe that God protects you? Truly. Not, yeah, I read that verse once. I'm not asking, have you heard it before? I'm asking if you believe. And, and what's more than that, do we live, as, as I believe John and Peter are living here, in light of the reality that God protects his people? I want to I help walk us through what it means that God is our protector in just a th- in three different ways, that God protects us in our hearts, that God protects us in our minds, and that God protects us in our bodies. See, fundamental to the protection of, the, of God is the fact that he doesn't preserve us in a fallen state. And so please hear this. God doesn't protect merely by preserving. So a lot of times when we think about protecting, we think about somebody maintaining status quo. I, I don't know about you, but I, the way I've lived my life, I hope that the Lord doesn't protect status quo. I hope he brings resurrection and transformation. So, so the Lord does not protect by just preserving who you and I are in our hearts and minds and in our bodies. He does something so much more than that. Rather, he restores us to a new state. The way that God protects is that he restores us to a new state. In other words, he protects us from ourselves by making us new. He protects us from ourselves by making us new. He doesn't protect what is perishable from decaying further. Rather, he protects us by making us imperishable through his work and his word in our hearts and our minds and our bodies. Let me break it down for us this way. Firstly, God protects us by giving us a new heart. See, despite the prevailing social infatuation and trust with and in our own hearts, right, And by the way, this is steeped in our culture. Just do whatever makes you happy. I watch The Bachelorette. I know. Like, it's just whatever your heart says. That's what you need to do. Don't hold it against me. It's the way I love my wife. (laughs) I love you, baby. I, I think this is an incredible truth because ultimately we believe that the escape clause from any morality is it just felt good to me. It made me happy. That ultimately our corrosive and broken heart is the thing that is telling us what to do. Friend, can I, can, can I just love you for a second? Remember, I love you so much. You need to be protected from your broken heart. I need to be protected from my broken heart. And this is how the Lord does it. Psalm uh, 73 verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Are you getting a picture of your heart? And yet here's Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Lord does not protect our broken hearts. The Lord does not protect our misguided hearts and merely our infatuations to allow them to thrive. He gives us a new heart that loves the things of God. That loves his will. That loves to obey. You know what my broken heart does not want to do? Obey God. 
And so I know when I begin to have this proclivity, this, this inclination to obey him, I'm like, that's my new heart. I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey. Why would I ever give my will to another unless I've been given a new heart? See, the beauty of this is that with this new heart, the Lord safeguards us from so much. With this new heart, the Lord protects us from despair. Even with a new heart, we are prone to despair, to go back in thinking and loving in the patterns and way of our old heart, believing that the gospel power of Jesus is not enough, that he's not enough to ensure that we live a life full of grace. And what the Lord does is he protects us from despair, reminding us of his work. See, this is what the Spirit of God has been given to the people of God for, to remind you of who Jesus is, to remind you of what he has commanded, and then to empower you in order to follow it. He gives you a new heart then that actually even loves to obey him. See, God protects us by giving us a new heart, and it keeps us from despair. It also keeps us from pride. Isn't it interesting that as human beings, we are so neurotic so many times. On Sunday afternoon, I can be deep in despair, and on Monday, I'm like, you're welcome, Jesus, I'm on your team. And I can be massively prideful. How is it that my heart goes from one side? Are, 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 am I the only one? It feels like some days I'm just like, woe is me. No one loves me. Nobody likes me. The next day I'm like, everybody wants to be my friend. I'm really, really good at stuff. And God in his kindness protects us from pride because even a new heart, we are tempted to trust in ourselves. We're tempted to trust in our own abilities and our own skill to bring about the future that we desire. And so what God does, what he protects us from, particularly within community, within Christian, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic, multi-gender community, what we're able to enjoy is great protection from loving things about myself, from loving myself in a way that is self-glorifying, that is self-actualizing, that ultimately it's about me living my best life, me accomplishing my dreams. The Lord protects us from pride. Not only that, but in our hearts, the Lord protects us from lies and temptations. Even with this new heart, we hear things that seem worthy of our love and joy. We cling to them immediately. These visible thrills of lust and self-pleasure. And what the Lord does is he reminds us of an enduring purity and enduring truth in our new heart. To love the things of God and not to love the things of this earth. Secondly, not only does he give us a new heart in protecting us, he gives us a new mind. And God doesn't protect us by... Uh, just giving us new thoughts, nor, nor does he just restore um, things that are, are broken, but he gives us a brand new mind. He gives us a new mind that is like the mind of God, that is shaped by the pattern and pathways of the gospels. The gospel. He makes new pathways of thinking possible when he gives us a new mind that is grounded and anchored in the reality of the gospel. Friend, what, what that means is the gospel is not just a message that you and I believe in and think about and leave it at the bedside of conversion. The gospel is evidence, a way of thinking and seeing all things. The gospel is not merely a message. It's a way in which we understand all truth through God's word. That's why Romans chapter 2, verse 2 says, Do not conform, or rather be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4, 23 and 25. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, 
Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Philippians 2, 5. Oh, I love this passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That the Lord will give us a mind of humility. See, the Lord doesn't protect our debased and broken minds by merely protecting and preserving it. He restores right thinking, he gives us a new mind, and he safeguards his children by giving us new pathways and patterns of thinking because he has given us a new mind that protects us from heresy and false narratives. Protects us from heresy. You see, and heresy is an untruth about God. And so with our new mind, though we are tempted to think wrongly about who God is, Even with a new mind, we must be diligent to take thoughts captive and allow God to center us, his people, on himself and the reality of his character. This means that to be a Christian, more and more, when something goes down in the world, we don't think, what do I think about that? What do I feel about that? But what does God's word say about that? Whenever you are watching the news, whenever you are reading the news, we are deeply tempted to just go, what do I think? How will that change how I vote? How will that change how I live? All well and good. First and foremost, we ought to say, what does God's word have to say about that? What does God's word have to say about immigration? What does God's word have to say about gender identity? What does God's word have to say about the power of government? What does God's word have to say about neighborhood renewal? What does God's word have to say about income inequality? What does God's word have to say about multi-ethnic and racial reconciliation and justice? Are you picking it up, church? We say, what does God's word have to say? That's what protects us from heresy, not warm fuzzies of what your traditional pathway is. Not only that, but our new minds that are given to us by God protects us from false narratives. A false narrative, I'd like to suggest, is is an untruth about you. An untruth about me that we believe about ourselves. Isn't it true with a new mind we're still prone to believe what others say about us? What we say about ourselves, not what God has said about us in his word. Brother, sister, do you know what God's word says about you? See, in Christ, you are therefore now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What that means, it's spectacular. It means that he has clothed you in his righteousness as he clothed Adam and Eve in the garden and forgiveness for their sins with an animal skin. So God in Christ has covered you with his blood. Therefore, when the heavenly father looks at you, he sees the holiness and beauty of his son, Jesus. And it's until we have that right thinking about who we are that doesn't puff us up in entitlement, but humbles us in gratitude. Humbles us in gratitude to know that when the Father sees me, he is pleased in me, not because I am great, but because the Son of God who covers my shame and guilt is great. See, this is, the, this is why we need to be in groups together. This is why we need to be discipled. Because left to myself, I don't think that about me. I don't think that about me. I don't think through the lens of my new mind. And what God does through his son is he has a way of looking at us that is beautiful and spectacular by the righteousness and beauty and truth of his son, Jesus. See, we're given a new mind in God that protects us from heresy and false narratives. Thirdly, God protects us by giving us a new body that's indwelled by his spirit. See, God doesn't give us, or God doesn't protect us, rather, by making this body perfect. The Lord knows that. I got a T-band issue right now that I'm just like, that's screaming at me. It's not perfect body. 35 years old, feel like I'm falling apart. Help me, Lord. 
See, without, not without sickness, not without disease, not without even physical, literal death as a consequence for sin. Rather, through the resurrection, what God gives us is the promise of a new body. A si- and a sign and seal of that new body is the Spirit of God. So if the Spirit of God lives within this body, it is a promise that one day I'll have a new body. One day all shall be well. And so the Apostle Paul could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 these words. For we know... That if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to, be, to put on our heavenly bodies, our heavenly dwelling rather. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Oh, thanks be to God. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. What this tells us is that the Spirit of God is living evidence that one day you and I will have a new body that will not ache, that will not have trouble sleeping, that will not get hurt, that will not be sick, that will not be vulnerable to the effects of evil and shame and brokenness. See, the Lord does not protect our fallen bodies by just keeping them as they are. He protects our bodies by promising us a new one. We see this in the resurrection of Christ. See, by his spirit, he shows us that we're safeguarded from decay by giving us a new body in the resurrection in the age and life to come. To be sure, we are called upon in this life to pray for the sick, to pray for those who are victimized by evil, to pray for those who are on their deathbed. And yet we know that no matter what sickness, no matter what evil, no matter where death swallows up life in this age, that our sickness and evil and death do not have the last word. And that our God is able and gracious to meet us right in the midst of our physical need. But we do not put hope and stock in this life, but rather in the life to come where the Spirit will no longer be a guarantee, but ultimately will be sight, will be vision, will be the taste, touch, see evidence of God's grace. What I'd like to say to you, though, is that this new gift of God's protection in your heart, in your new mind, in your new body, are only for those who believe. God does not protect, give this kind of protection to those who reject him in disobedience. And this is what's so important for us to see. This is evidence of divine protection that the apostles are enjoying, that Peter and John here are enjoying. Why? Because they are trusting in him. Because they are surrendered to him. That, that God would protect their hearts, that God would protect their minds, that God would protect their bodies, no matter what happened to them in this life. They are going forward and speaking and living with courage because they have more faith in God than they have faith in the risk and consequence that they may befall them in this life. So they go forward in courage. And because of their faith, God protects them. Look at verse 21. 
And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. God protected them. To be sure, this story could go different, and they could have exacted incredible punishment upon them. And later on in Acts, that to be sure that happens. But what God gives us a picture of here is that he is in control. He is in charge. He is the one who protects his people. Your silence and lack of boldness will not protect you. Only God gives you a new mind and a new heart and a new body. He is the one who protects us. Now, why do we not experience this this protection? I think it's because we're trusting in other things. Namely, we look for protection in other places, and I'd like to walk through those to help us see, because it's all well and good when you go, preacher, that's good, new heart, new mind, new body. The problem is we are constantly tempted to not believe and trust in those things, so we make protection for ourselves. Here's how I believe we do that. Instead of trusting that God has given us a new heart, we try to protect our hearts with relationships and religion. We try to protect our own hearts with relationships and religion. See, when our hearts are hurt, or they long for comfort. We cling to our spouse. We cling perhaps to our children. We cling to another romantic infatuation. We cling to pixels on a screen for relationships. We go to those things because they, we believe that those things will protect us and keep us from the pain that our heart is going through. We do the same thing with religion. We, we want to follow God. Maybe we've even shown up here because somehow spiritually we're hurting and believe by showing up in church, it's not magical to show up in this context. It's powerful because God is here and we experience that protection from him, not just because we show up, but because we trust and believe in him. See, we protect our hearts by going to relationships and going to religion many different places. We protect our minds by trusting in worldly wisdom and cultural cul-de-sacs. Oh, and I, I, I trust that I will not take too much time in cultural cul-de-sacs because that's, that's, a, that's a favorite spot of mine. Worldly wisdom. It's those things that sound right, that sound good. And so we begin to build our lives on that. Happiness, I believe, is very central to that right now. That we default to just do what makes us happy, not what actually makes us holy and brings glory to God. See, followers of Jesus go in the complete opposite trajectory of culture. We do not simply say, what makes me happy and I'll do that, but what would bring glory to God? And despite how happy that will make me in the short term, I will trust that God will bring me joy in the long term. And these cultural cul-de-sacs, we believe, will protect our minds. What, what I mean by this is that we begin to simply, if, if we believe that our minds need to be protected, we stop engaging with people who have differing opinions from us, who have different backgrounds than us, who grew up in a different situation than us, who have different skin color and cultural heritage than us. We only listen to our news outlets and not the outlets of our opponents. We only listen to the people that we believe already think and act like we do. So we protect our minds by never challenging our minds. We protect our minds by merely going within a homogeneous sort of think and intellectual context. Thirdly, the way that we protect our bodies is with CrossFit and Fitbit and medication. See, when our bodies begin to be frail and we begin to feel the weakness of our bodies, we begin to dedicate ourselves to whatever a cultural fad is that we believe will help us not feel that way anymore. So when we feel this body failing, we don't trust the Lord, we buy new technology. We get a new uh, 
prescription from our doctor. We want the pain to go away. We want the flabbiness to go away. We want the tiredness to go away. And so in CrossFit, we try. And some of y'all are like, yeah, those people are crazy, but you, you, you were one of the first people that got that subscription. Is it a subscription? Membership. There's the word. Now, a little disclaimer. When we go to relationships, when we go to worldly wisdom and those cultural cul-de-sacs, when we go to CrossFit, you are protected. It does do something to you, but just for a season. When we begin to trust in relationships and move towards these cultural aspects of wisdom and in our own little lane of culture and social thinking, when we go to the new and latest technology or medication to help our bodies, it does work for a season. And I would also suggest to you that, yes, there is wisdom in these things, but they are not ultimate. You should not look to your spouse, your children, your gym membership, and CNN or Fox News to be your savior. To be sure, we want to experience all the plethora of God's beautiful creation, but only Jesus is the one who makes us courageous. Only Jesus is the one who gives us a new heart. Only Jesus is the one who gives us a new mind. Only Jesus is the one that promises that you will have a new body. See, our failure to live with courage and boldness is rooted in our failure to trust in the Lord's protection. Our failure to live with courage is rooted in our failure to trust in the Lord's protection. And so this is why we must look to the cross. Because it's on the cross where Jesus makes himself completely vulnerable to the elements of sin. It's on the cross where Jesus lays himself completely exposed to Satan, sin, and death, and all of the ill effects that have been ushered into this life because of your sin and because of mine. In, in other words, he allowed himself to be unprotected. Unprotected by the Father. In fact, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? So because Jesus has done that, and because Jesus has become victorious over that, therefore, whatever befalls your heart, whatever is making your mind sick, whatever is trapping your body in mediocrity, pain, or weariness, no longer has to have power over you. Are you picking up on that, church? Because Jesus has overwhelmed whatever has made your heart sick. Because Jesus has overwhelmed whatever heresy has befalled your mind. Because Jesus rose from the dead that death could not hold him down. That therefore, no matter what grips your body today, will no longer grip your body in the age to come. And his spirit is evidence of this. See, we trust in Jesus because Jesus has overcome everything that terrifies us. We trust in Jesus because Jesus is the only one who has championed our cause on the cross. CrossFit did not die for you. Your spouse did not die for you. Your children did not die for you. Your doctor did not die for you. The New York Times did not die for you. No one and nothing has died for you except Jesus. Therefore, no one is worthy of your trust except for Jesus. And so we can live differently. Oh, Lord, help us live differently. Because of what Jesus has done, we can live with those who have a new heart. We can love differently. Because of what Jesus has done, we can think differently. Because of what Jesus has done, we can risk our life for the sake of the gospel because you can't kill someone who's already been risen from the dead. Because God preserves us. God protects us. God keeps us. God is the one who holds us in the palm of his hand. This is what we're singing to my children. 6421 on the way. Your prayers are appreciated. 
what we sing to them every night is, here's my heart, Lord. Take and keep it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What I want my children to know from a very early age is there is nothing in this life that can steal what the Lord protects. There is nothing in this life that can take from you what the Lord God in Christ has given you through his resurrected son. Can you imagine if we began to be a people that lived like that? That lived with new hearts and new minds and lived as if this body was not the end all be all. That ultimately one day we will have a new body. Can't you see? I think we'd live with a lot more boldness. I think we'd live with a lot more courage. I think we'd see a lot more of this. Look at verse 22. After all this has happened, the religious leaders realize they can't do anything to stop Peter and John. Verse 22 sort of explains it all. For they, the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, a body that everyone else gave up on. He's too old. A person that everyone else gave up on because his heart was broken, his mind perhaps they didn't believe was fully there, his body certainly was dilapidated. See, I think when we live with courage and with a new heart and a new mind and believing that we will have a new body, we don't give up on anybody. We live with boldness and courage for the least, the last, the lost, the broken, those in despair, those who are gripped by pride and control and power. We don't give up on anybody, but we live with boldness because God in Christ did not give up on us, not because we were special, but because we were his. Friends, can you even imagine if we became a church like that? Can you even imagine if we began to live with this kind of boldness, this kind of courage, not because we wanted to be remembered, but because we couldn't help but remember the one who had done this work for us. See, Peter and John were threatened by the government, governmental officials, by the religious leaders of the day. I don't know what's threatening you. To be sure, I know that our back is against the wall socially, culturally, and otherwise, but those things don't terrify us because the church has always found itself in that particular historical context. And so the church that is alive and well is the church that one day we'll see even better days. The best days of the church are always in our future. I believe that. If the Lord Jesus will one day come back and restore all things and make all things well, then the best days are always ahead of the church. We don't look backwards and wish for the good old days. We look forward and look forward to the glory days of which Jesus will return and set things to right. And so we believe and hope and trust that heaven is not a place that is waiting for us to show up. Heaven is the reality that Jesus has brought to this world and that one day heaven and earth shall be one, that one day we will see in full what now we only see in part. And so we should be a people that live with incredible courage, but not because of ourselves, but because Jesus has given us a new heart, because Jesus has given us a new mind, because Jesus has promised us a new body by the gift of his spirit. So where do you need to live with courage? Where do you need to live with more boldness? Where do you need to live with more trust? What do you need to confess that you have more faith in than Jesus? Because however much we believe and trust in God's protection, that's how much courage we will live with. And I pray, by God's grace, we will live with much 
boldness. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We have been a very timid people. We have been a timid people because we have trusted and hoped and believed more in the risk and the cost of living for you than we have trusted in your protection to care for us at the level of our heart and mind and body. And so, God, we just ask for your forgiveness and thank you that you are a God who does not leave us in despair. You are a God who does not leave us in pride and self-sufficiency. You are the God who still raises the dead. And so we trust you. We look to you. We hope in you. And help us to be a people, not just individuals, help us to be a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, here in the near west side of the city and beyond, Father, would you do such a work of courage and boldness in us that we would have similar powers of our day wondering what in the world do we do with this church? What in the world do we do with these men and women and these families? What in the world do we do with these brothers and sisters? God, we'll give you all the glory for it because you're the one who will have done all the work. And so we love you, we thank you, in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Would you stand and sing with us? Mm -hmm.